Hello, and welcome to Writing the Coast. I'm your host, Megan Cole. And Writing the Coast is the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. On Writing the Coast, I help you get acquainted with the authors and illustrators whose book make up our annual shortlist. My guest for this episode is Bryony Penn. Penn's book, A Year on the Wild Side, A West Coast Naturalist Almanac, is nominated for the Roderick Haig Brown Regional Prize. Bryony is a best-selling author. Her books have also been shortlisted for the book prizes before. She's also a naturalist and a broadcaster. But if you're reading A Year on the Wild Side and you're experiencing some deja vu, that might be because Bryony has been a longtime contributor for the Victoria publication, Monday Magazine. When we spoke, she guessed she's written nearly 300 columns. They center around nature, the world, and her own life. Those columns were used to create A Year on the Wild Side. In addition to the pieces that are rich in information, story, and humor, the book includes Bryony's illustrations. Bryony starts our conversation with a reading from her book. Maple Leaf Rag, Leaf Me Alone. Sex and politics are the only conversation topics I used to avoid at polite parties. But now I'm adding leaves to that list. Leaves are not inherently controversial, it's just that they evoke complicated emotions. First, there's the tension between those who like the leaf on the flag and those who don't. And that has always been complicated, especially if you lived here first and like leaves but never bought into Canada as a concept. And then there's the division between those who want to get rid of leaves and those who leave them on the ground for posterity. And that is getting more divisive every day. I've always taken the word leaves in its literal sense, as in leave them where they are. I'm a dead giveaway as a leaf lever. I have leaves pinned to my chest and gumboots stuck to my feet, and I hiss whenever I see a leaf blower. As far as the maple leaf on the Canadian flag goes, I'm proud at least that we aspired to a humble leaf instead of a distant galaxy of stars or some rampant lion like our neighbors or the monarchy across the sea. I'm not big on nationhood, but composting leaves seems benign enough to embrace. But I didn't know I felt so strongly about the subject until I was caught by a surprise question at a party. Don't you find these enormous leaves are a real nuisance to rake up and get rid of? A woman innocently asked, pointing to the baroque canopy of gold, red, and orange maple leaves draped around us. She was from California. They invented pink stucco and talk about nothing but sex at parties. But something snapped when she raised the question, and I ended up in a tirade against everything from leaf blowers to the extinction of amphibians. It was quite a performance. She quickly moved on to the next guest. In hindsight, things could have been handled much better. She probably didn't know they were maple leaves pinned to my Canadian heart. She certainly didn't know it was a big leaf maple, the biggest leaved maple in Canada, which every West Coaster boasts about and presses between two sheets of wax paper in kindergarten. She probably wasn't used to real autumns where the days are so moist and tranquil that you slide through them like a banana slug over skunk cabbage. She was as uninformed as the prime minister that allowed the Norwegian species of maple leaf to be printed on the Canadian $20 bill. 
I could also forgive her for not recognizing the signs of a person who leaves leaves. I had left my gumboots and my religion at the door. I have now had time to calm down and prepare what I would like to have said. Funny big leaves, aren't they? The biggest one ever found was a meter wide, hanging off a tree as huge as a heron's wingspan. We also have the smallest maple leaves in Canada. You hardly notice the Douglas maples all year until now when they turn scarlet and leap right out of the bush at you. When you get the two together, you have perfection. That's why we are having a party here, a maple party. It's a quaint West Coast custom. And if you stay here a while, you'll get to love them. Did you know that this month was called time of the changing of the colors of the leaves in the local Coast Salish language? Our maples are subtle in their changes. Easterners say that our maples can't hold a candle to theirs, but I'm not so sure. Although I bet they have maple parties too. It's probably a quaint trans-Canadian custom. And the leaves are so useful, you can leap in them and steam a fish in them. You can even stick them on a flag and wave them. In November of 1964, Canadians proposed the maple leaf flag for the first time. We debated over including the Florida Lee and Union Jack, but in the end, a simple autumnal leaf seemed just right. They flutter down around every Canadian from the Pacific to the Atlantic, regardless of religion, language, cultural origin, and politics, and then they quietly rot into the earth. In fact, what leaves are best designed for is decomposing. Tons of organic matter creeps slowly into the earth by an army of bacteria and many beasts. Next spring, there'll be a rich layer of humus cloaked with a delicate lace shawl of skeleton leaves that will fly up into the air with the equinoctial gales. Speaking of gales, November was called by that same Salish nation, month of the shaking of the leaves. It's a signal that the golden time is over. I wouldn't be able to trust myself to go further. It's an emotional subject, these leaves. I'm sort of attached to the ideas of rich soil and, and tranquility and having golden piles of leaves to leap into and a country that apologizes to the people of the leaves who know more than anyone when the golden time was over. Next party I go to, I'll just stick to the weather. Thank you. Uh, that's such a, a great piece to start this with because I have... I think it, I mean, first of all, it really speaks to the passion and love in this book. And it's a passion and love for the West Coast, uh, for the Salish Sea. And there was another word that you mentioned that I will probably get wrong. Rangalia, is that correct? That's right. Rangalia. Yeah. So I'm curious where your, um, your love and passion for this place began. Well, I think it's... Um... I think it just comes straight from my family and my upbringing. I was such, um, had such a privileged childhood in that I was raised on a hill um, near Victoria and on Salt Spring in the summers. And um, I just had this so much open space and had these wonderful landscapes that I could play in. And that ranged from sort of Gary Oak Meadows to these beautiful West Coast temperate rainforests. And then places like the, you know, these, we just talked about the, the big leaf maples, these big, beautiful kind of lush um, red cedar swamps and, and big leaf maple. You know, it was really falling in love with the place. And I was, I had three brothers and sometimes I was trying to escape them. And I always found sanctuary in, in nature, and that's where I'd go. 
So I think it's kind of where, and I was lucky enough, I had grannies that were very, they were naturalists and they were really interested and, and took me around as a child. And we had a wonderful program in those days called the, um, the BC Park Wardens. And they were people trained as naturalists and had a great love of the natural world. And they would take kids around. Every school child would go to the provincial parks and be met by these wonderful naturalists like Freeman King and, and the people he trained. I actually think one of the saddest things was the discontinuation of that program. And, and it was discontinued for political reasons, which seemed to me just so awful <laughs> that nature has been politicized. I remember those uh, wardens because I rem- we went camping at Gordon Bay as kids and they used to do summer programs there where they would talk about um, different things like eating cedar if you needed to survive in the woods or something. <laughs> uh, it was it, It's interesting in looking at the book and in reading the book that you, you went from the big to the small, because I think sometimes when we talk about the environment and when people rally around saving it, it's the bigger animals and organisms that get the posters and campaigns. Why was it important to you to include everything from, you know, the big leaf maple and lichen to the Sasquatch? Um, well, you know, these, these stories and, um, started off as newspaper columns so um, I was asked by Monday magazine to write each and it would come out every week and so each week I would write about what was happening and so what's hap was happening really varied right so you know it suddenly be mushroom week and all of that mushrooms are exploding everywhere so I'd write about mushrooms and then the next week you know suddenly the spiders are everywhere so I'd start writing about spiders and then what I would would be to tie in some kind of current event or some kind of something that was going on with what was happening in the natural world. So it was really kind of over the years, um, I wrote, oh, I don't know, close to 300 um, articles um, that were natural history and a kind of, you know, as and a hook, some kind of cultural hook. And so it was partly just because that was what I was doing, I had so many opportunities to write these essays that, um, you know, you, you never even scraped the barrel on the West Coast. I could have kept writing for another, you know, 300 years and still not exhausted the list of, of different either groups of animals or species or stories that are out there. Um, and then what I did for the book was to sort of take the ones that I noticed got clipped out and put on people's refrigerators most often as the the more popular ones and and just brought those together in a compilation and that's so there's and partly what I did for the book was to kind of create um a guide that was you know the more common plants and animals of the coast because what I realized is that People, you know, people are moving here all the time. They don't know what's here. They love to know, but they don't know where to start. And I wanted to create something that would kind of like hold their hand and say, you know what, doesn't matter if you don't know anything. You know, you might just start with spiders because you notice them, you know, moving into your house and starting to spin more webs than normal. And and let's start with spiders. Or, you know, you might have noticed that you're on a ferry and you start seeing these beautiful little black and white birds with 
bright red legs and you wonder what they are, well, you can somewhere in the book you'll find, you know, a whole story about these little pigeon guillemots, which turn out to be, you know, a common little seabird, but hardly anyone knows their name. And that was sort of the intent, was to try and bring alive every week, you know, there's something going on in the forest or in the sea or in the Gary Oak Meadows that is worth looking at and has connections and connections back to your life and you know can make you feel better and you know is probably having a worse day than you are or has some crazy you know lifestyle that is so much crazier than yours that it makes you feel like you're normal or I I just tried I wrote these throughout a 30-year period and I was going through what a lot of people go through getting married having kids uh, kids growing up, all the problems with teenagers, going through a divorce, dating as an older person, you know, all those kinds of things. And and so I would just weave the stories into kind of what I was going through as well. So there's a little bit of memoir in the stories as well. Yeah, and that came across in the in the piece you read as well. It also seemed, and maybe I'm reading into this, but as I was uh, reading the introduction this morning, just to uh, refresh my memory on the book, it, it seemed like there may have been a bit of frustration when it came to activism and the environment. You were kind of speaking to this conflict of what has the most impact, direct action or or writing and art. Is that an accurate read? And how did that translate into into this book in particular? Yeah, I think that's an accurate read because, you know, for most of my life, I've also been an activist. And sometimes it was, um, you know, you felt that you were lending a voice in an important way to a cause. Um, and other times you just thought, if I have to go to one more protest at the legislature for the same issue I'll scream um, like I've been going to I've been going to protest for old growth at the legislature most of my life and I'm going to be 60 this year <laughs> and nothing changes and it's like oh my god so at least when I when I write I know that if nothing else it's like therapy at least I know the, there might be someone out there who shares my frustration and together at least we can say you know we care about these places we care about how important they are for so many people for so many animals for for so much of life and for our health and and for every other reason and at least we can laugh um, about the stupidity of the system that we find ourselves in that can't even recognize its value and um, for me, that was, you know, an important part of the writing. I think there's one article where I, I, I write a letter um, to a, a CEO of an oil company, and I, I, I was kind of riffing off a letter that Groucho Marx had written to T.S. Eliot. And, and I just, it was so therapeutic to just be able to kind of borrow this sort of you know humor of a of a great comedian and apply it to my all my frustrations and and it was all sort of structured around the life cycle of a, a frilled anemone which isn't something that you know a ceo of an oil company ever thinks about but that's the absurdity of it just made me laugh so yeah i think i think being an activist is a really really hard path to choose um, doesn't win you a lot of friends uh, in certain circles and 
it's hard on careers if you're that way inclined, but I, the people that I've come across in my life have been so extraordinary and, and so courageous. And so a lot of what I've done latterly, um, is really write about those lives as well. So that's, that's, um, that's been part of what I did. So there was a sim- uh, another book that came out this year at the same time as this one was called Stories from the Magic Canoe. And it was about a indigenous elder, Cecil Paul. And, and if I think I'm frustrated, um, it, it, the, the, it, it was, <laughs> I mean, I can't even put it into words. Uh, you know, imagine how frustrated you would be to have been uh, endure the last 150 years with some for for someone like Cecil Paul in his homeland of of the Heisla territory. So, yeah, I think I think it's just a tribute um, and a and a little bit of help self help for for an activist because it is mostly humorous. And you you just spoke to something else I I noticed especially in this book was the role of collaboration. And I could tell you spoke to a lot of people um, and were engaging with a lot of people in your work. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about why collaboration is so important in the work that you do. Well, I think I've had all my teachings from, you know, grannies and elders and, and people that have been around the, 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 the forest a few times. I think that what we're suffering from in part now is the failure to collaborate, um, the failure to listen to other worldviews, the failure to listen to women, the failure to listen to indigenous voices, the failure to listen to um, people of color, the failure to listen to voices of, of the animals, the birds, the, the insects, um, those who don't have a voice, but certainly have as much right to this earth. And as in fact are, you know, as, as you know, a lot of indigenous elders would say, these are our relations. They are, we are, we're traveling together. So um, not to collaborate just seems to me is just stupid. I mean, why, why would we think that we know everything and it would be so boring? I mean, I can't think of a world any more boring than the one that was inhabited just by myself. Like, honestly, I, I, I don't really understand the um, the tremendous flourishing of the cult of the individual in the last I don't know maybe hundred couple hundred years. It's a strange one. It's a really strange one. I don't believe that everybody shares that that preoccupation. But I, you know, for whatever reason, it's it's the system we've got. It's and it's failed us. And I think. What we've also witnessed in the last while through COVID is that we can collaborate. We've got an extraordinary ability to care for our fellow human beings. And I, I feel that the, you know, as someone said, COVID is a badly wrapped gift. The other gift that it's given us, apart from being able to collaborate and care enough for other people that we're going to stay in, stay at home and not share our germs, is that people have stayed at home and started exploring their own backyards. And, um, uh, the, the, um, I think that the book has done quite well in time of COVID because people suddenly, instead of flying off and going off and, you know, there's a, there's a problem with the, the boomer generation and that we kind of, uh, got this notion that we were all entitled to, um, uh, bucket lists or whatever they call them 
where we're supposed to be flinging off all to all parts of the globe to experience and travel. But I, I, I really hope that it's, it's shown us that we can, we can just go out in our own backyards and, and be stewards of our own backyards and see the most incredible things and see the most incredible people. Um, you know, I can't, I think one thing that I don't know if it comes through in the book, but I, I feel like I want to write about it more and more is that once you get connected to your the, your local landscape and the people in your community and, and indigenous communities and, and people that you don't normally communicate with in whatever way and, and sort of like these real relationships, there's this kind of magic that happens because you're all you, you really realize how connected we are. I think when we're just buying things and not not really working on interrelationships, we don't realize how connected we are. But when you start just really focusing on our interconnectedness, then it feels magic. Then you feel like you're walking through a magical world. And I really think a lot more people are, are discovering that magic of being connected. And I think that's a really great benefit of COVID. Yeah, that's so true. I think we're seeing that more and more as, you know, we can support and and uh, learn from each other, even if we can't necessarily share space in the same way, too, which has been so interesting to see. Um, something I, I wanted to touch on a little bit was your your comedy, your humor in your writing um, and where that came from and if it's always been there. Well, I, I kind of touched on the fact that um, I, you know, I'm, I, nothing is new. I go and I go and look at the great comedians and try and understand and, and steal from them because there's this wonderful material that usually is applying to the human condition, but I just try and apply it to you know, a wider community of beings. So I have a lot of, you know, there's a lot of funny people out there that I've learned from. There's a, there's another wonderful book that's called the comedy of, um, I think it's called the comedy of nature. And I really think that mostly nature is about comedy. I think tragedy is very much a human construct but but there's not a, like there really isn't tragedy when you look at functioning interconnected systems i mean you know we all we're all born and we all die uh, I, I think you can see in the in this diversity of approaches to survival that there's some approaches that are that are you know it's probably easier to be a a leaf and be munched than to be a herring and be consumed by just about every predator in the book but I don't think it's a tragedy so I think comedy is just naturally evolves out of the natural world I just think it's and it's sort of the real meaning of the world it's it's kind of like oh you're just tripping along and then suddenly boom you know you you you, you do fall prey to something or, or you know a mold jumps on you and starts growing or and, and and there's consequences, but there's also suddenly this realization of being part of this bigger system. And, and there's just, I don't know, I just find there's humor in it. And there's humor in how we as humans um, go about our business of trying to, trying to make sense of all of this. And it really struck me one day that I was, you know, out there being a little activist and, you know, making signs and trying to 
do this and that. And just looking at this lizard sitting in this sort of rocky outcrop area near this ditch and thinking, you know, they, they, it's quite humorous that here I am. At the time I was pregnant, um, it's just quite humorous that there's this pregnant woman sitting in a ditch trying to, to um, save the world because it's not where she should be. And that would be most sensible people would think that's not a great place to be. So I, I think some of the humor is just about trying to, you know, being an activist and sort of trying to go against the, the flow. The, you know, you're going upstream the whole way. You're sort of a salmon in the stream of life. And it's, it seems somewhat ridiculous at times, but it's humorous at times. And I think humor is what gets you through in the end. We've talked about uh, the writing in this book, but there's also such beautiful artwork as well that pairs so beautifully with all the pieces. How did the artwork come about? And I, I did read that you've always been drawing and, and producing art. So how did those two come together for this project? Well, you know, I have to pay tribute again to uh, one of the early publishers for Monday Magazine. He knew I he knew I was an artist as well, and so he said, "Well, why don't you um, you know do a drawing each week, and then we can put the drawing with the with the story." Um, so it was a great opportunity to sort of express. You know, for some people, to be honest, they don't even read the stories. They just look at the pictures. And I loved that because, you know, I, I'm sometimes that kind of a person. And I knew that kids would probably look at the pictures and not read it. And, in fact, um, with this edition, the people, it's always, they come up and they go, oh, I love the pictures. And you know they haven't read a single word. But that's fine if that's what people relate to and they like I, I hope that in my pictures it conveys the same things that I want to convey in my writing that these are incredible you know fellow beings on the coast they're they're beautiful they're worthy of our of us valuing them there's a humor and caricature in my drawings I can I'm, I'm almost incapable of drawing anything without slightly caricaturing it which I think is what how my writing comes through too. It's just kind of I guess it's my worldview, and it was just this wonderful opportunity handed me by a newspaper editor, which normally doesn't come along very often because usually you're separated out. You're either an illustrator or you're or a writer, and you never get to bring the two together. But for this, I really want to thank the editors of Monday Magazine at the time. There was a wonderful guy called Sid Taffler, and I'd like to pay tribute to him. Were you surprised when you started doing the columns that, you know, you would produce 300, some of them? Did you did you think that would be the path you would be going down? Oh, no. Are you kidding? Like, I can't believe I'm still like, I, I think I actually may have written my last column just at the end of March before COVID. Um, who would have known that I would be doing them for 30 years? So I consider it a huge privilege. I mean, to be able to have had a, a platform to, you know, work out my psychotherapy and, you know, biggest, biggest um, angst in a, in a public platform and that people would read them and that, you know, they could, people would read them in a collected form. So no, I had no idea. In fact, my mother was somebody who had, really fought hard to go to university and get a degree and and become a professional 
So when when I started writing for Monday Magazine, she was really disappointed in me because I had opted out of academia and in a sort of career path. And I decided I was more interested in communicating, you know, like to the everyday sort of person. And she was so mad at me. She was like, why are you writing for that, you know, crummy little free newspaper when you can be publishing journals? I mean, I'm making her sound bad. She wasn't really, but she was disappointed that I wasn't pursuing an academic career in the way that, you know, I mean, I did teach a little bit, but I wasn't an academic per se. And she was really disappointed. <laughs> but, you know, I, w- one of the profs, I, I taught for 20 years, so I, I wasn't in, in an academic institution. I just wasn't a full-blown professor. But one of the professors that I worked with for, for 20 years said, you know, I bet you more people have read your columns than they've ever read my, my you know, esoteric peer-reviewed journals. And I think I think he's right. And so, you know, I, I understand my mom's concerns because she worked so hard to, to, to get to that place. But I also think that I'm kind of a child of my time, which was that academia needed to, to, to be able to be relevant to people. And if you're just publishing in these esoteric journals, no one ever reads them. And so what is, what's the use? So I felt like one of the things I could do was to just bring some of the the information that I was getting from my colleagues and, and bring it to every, you know, anybody, anybody that picked up this free newspaper. And what were, what are some of the, your favorite responses that you had? You said you mentioned people, you know, cutting them out and putting them on their fridges. Did, did people come up to you and share, you know, their thoughts and feelings about what they had read? Oh, yeah, I have had so much great feedback over the years. Um, I mean, my favorite, (laughs) my favorite one was, um, which is not a good one, but it's my favorite. I I had to go in, I went to an elementary school and, and the teacher really wanted me to talk about writing and the writing process. And so I told them that you know, writing might look easy, but you did have to go through lots of edits. And I showed them this little pile of edits, you know, my first draft, second draft, the draft back from the publisher or the editor, and then, you know, second, fourth, and you're, you know, like you go through a process, right? And this little girl wrote, Dear Bunny, thank you for coming to read your stories. I really liked your stories, but I will never, 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 never be a writer because it sounds so boring rewriting all you. <laughs> So, that was my favorite turning the children against writing anyway yeah no I think um, I think you know people the, the best thing is that actually people don't they don't come and say oh I loved your art you know article on humpback whales or something they come up and they say I just want to tell you about I had this amazing experience with humpback whales and they'll share their stories and I can see that what they've done is they've taken the article, they've kind of embodied it, and then they've written their own article and they've written their own story. And they've got a story now that they can share with their children, their family, and it's coming from their deep place of love. And that to me is the big, that's the value. I don't, I don't care that they don't remember the stories. What I care about is that they've now got that they've been given a license to value their experiences and share them thanks to Bryony for being on writing the coast and thank you to you our lovely listeners for tuning in and listening to these episodes 
If you'd like to find out more about the BC and Yukon Brook Prizes, and there's lots of news coming your way because our gala is just weeks away, be sure to visit our website, bcyukonbookprizes.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Next time on Writing the Coast, you'll hear my conversation with Michael Nicol Yaklanis, whose book Carpe Finn, Haida Manga, is nominated for the Roderick Haig Brown Regional Prize. Thanks for listening to Writing the Coast.